Exodus chapter 40. Last chapter in Exodus. We started Exodus September of last year. It's the, I think, the 48th sermon. Now we're going to be done. Not sure what it's going to be like not preaching out of Exodus. <laughs> Exodus chapter 40. So the end has come where God has given the instructions to meet with them, and it's been built, tabernacle's been built, and now they have to put it together, and then wait for the true worship in the tabernacle. So in chapter 40, in verse 1, it says, uh, after Moses had inspected the work of the tabernacle, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put it in at the ark of the testimony. And partition off the ark with the veil. Then he proceeds to give them the instructions how exactly to set up the ark, set up the tabernacle, where to place things, kind of reiterating what he's already said to Moses. And verse 16, thus Moses did, according to all the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, that's one year to the day that they came out of Egypt, so they Remember when they, right before they crossed the Red Sea, they had the Passover and they were all standing up, ready to go? That was the first day of the year. Now, one year later, Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put it in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle hung up the veil of the covering and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offerings before the door of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the labor between the, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with the water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court of the, of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. This book has been about the creation of the nation of Israel. Every nation has an origin, and this is the origin of Israel. But it's not just like any other one where people just kind of come together to decide how they want to live. It's about God displaying his power 
by redeeming a people out of slavery to worship him. God has created this people through a special act of his power. And the whole book of Exodus points us towards the ongoing redemption of Christ through the cross, where he redeems the church and creates a nation out of the church. And then ultimately when Christ returns and makes all things new and rules over the nation, that encompasses all the people on the earth. In other words, this is a book about politics. The church is political. Power, ruling, kings, governors, leaders, laws, that's politics. And what we see here is that God has his own set of politics. And they're fulfilled in Christ. Everything in the book of Exodus is fulfilled in Christ. It prepares for Christ. So here's a list that Riken gives. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation. Jesus is the lamb of our Passover. Jesus is our way out of Egypt. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness. Jesus is the light of our lampstand. Jesus is the basin for our cleansing. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat. And Jesus is the glory in the tabernacle. That's what Exodus is about. Exodus is about being a country, a nation, whose politics, whose government, whose law is built by God, inhabited by Christ. So we're talking about three things. Three kinds of king. That's what it's about. It's about kingship. King of power, king of love, and king of liberty. And we're going to contrast that with Pharaoh, who was also a king, who was the opposite of all those things. Because one thing about Exodus, you, you have to pick a side. See, America is all about picking sides. Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian. Exodus is saying those are all on one side and God's on the other. Pharaoh versus God. So a God of power, a God of love, and a God of liberty. So look at a, a king of power. That's what this passage is teaching us. Notice what happens. God says, Moses, do these things exactly. And Moses says, I'll do those things exactly. The ability to command somebody to obey your word perfectly is a display of power. So this passage is written to show us that Moses, the greatest character in the Old Testament, greater than David, greater than Joseph, greater than Abraham, Moses, the leader of Israel, obeys God word for word as an example of who God is. See, this is the kind of king. He's a king of power who is expects and is obeyed exactly. When he speaks, his power creates obedience. Now, let's contrast that with Pharaoh, the other king in this book. Exodus chapter 1. If you want to turn there, we're going to go back and forth between Exodus 1 and Exodus 40. First chapter and last chapter. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Pharaoh has no power. God speaks and his people obey. There's no fear. There's just power. Moses, manipula uh, Pharaoh manipulates. 
He says, let's deal shrewdly with them. They're stronger than us. That's not a king of power. That's a king who has to use trickery. And the, the passage goes on. He says he tells the, the midwives to kill the babies, but they don't. Again, a display of a lack of power from the most powerful man in the land. But then it goes on to show how the midwives trick him and say, I, we couldn't. They were too strong. It happened too fast. And Pharaoh lets him go. You see the contrast between the king of the world, tricked, manipulating, conniving, and the king of glory who speaks and is obeyed. He doesn't descend to tricking people. See, Pharaoh manipulates and is tricked. God speaks and is obeyed. So how do we know this? Because God says, Pharaoh, let's go up against each other. Let's have a contest between the king of Egypt and the king of the world. Let's see how that will work out. And so Pharaoh manipulates. He lies. He steals. He connives. He tries to kill. And God does what? God destroys. Utterly. Breaks the backbone of Egypt. Eliminates the entire army. Displays true power. He doesn't need political backrooms and maneuverings. He opens up the sea and drowns everybody in it. He goes house to house and kills the firstborn. God is a God of power. That's the king that we worship. Not a king that uses manipulation or political trickery, but a God of power who says something and does it and expects to be obeyed because of it. You see, look, look at this passage. The last verse says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, God is so powerful that his very existence prevents life from entering in. Moses, the greatest man in the Old Testament, can't go into where God is. God's not even doing anything. He's existing as God, which threatens the very life of Moses. When God shows up, his very presence is so powerful that it destroys sin, unless restrained. That's what God is saying here. What kind of king is God? A king that is so powerful that his own people have to have special protection just to be around him. Remember Pharaoh? Moses went in and out and talked to Pharaoh. No problem. And yet Moses here can't go into the presence of God lest he die. But I want to connect this to us. You see, that is God. But that's not just the God of the Old Testament. And it's not even just the God of the New Testament. That is Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28 says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, go back to Exodus. Who is God? A God who destroys armies, who eliminates nations, whose presence is dangerous. Jesus says, I have that authority. When you think of Christ, go back to Exodus and see who Christ is. See, the, see, sometimes we think of Christ because of his mercy and his grace, 
as sort of just regular and soft and normal and just not that intimidating. We must realize that the only reason Christ is not intimidating is because he restrains himself. Otherwise, he would wipe us out. Jesus Christ would wipe us out like he wiped out the Egyptians. Only the mercy of God protects us. So don't let the mercy of God make you view Jesus any less than a God of power, a king of power. That's why Jesus then says, observe all things I have commanded you. Now it makes sense with Moses. Moses saw God act in power and destroy people, and so he obeyed. We should do the same thing with Christ. Not out of fear, but out of respect for who Christ is. Christ who destroys and saves. Who expects complete and perfect obedience. We don't trick Christ. We don't manipulate. We don't negotiate. We obey. So the king of power versus Pharaoh. But we also see the king of love. Look what God does here. We think of this tabernacle as an amazing thing. It's true. But you know ultimately what it was? A tent in the middle of the desert. You ever been camping? The tent can never be too nice. It's still always a tent. And the desert is always the desert. It's never just a nice desert. It's always a bad desert. So kind of the last place you want to live is in a tent in the desert. Yet, the ultimate conclusion of the book of Exodus is God, not on the mountain anymore. See, the cloud is moved. The cloud was on the mountain. It moves from the mountain to live in a tent among his people. Why? Because he loves them. You see, Pharaoh lives in a palace. God lives in a tent. What's the difference? Is it power? No. It's love. The love of God, the king's love for his people, brings him down to their level to live in the dirt with them. That's Jesus Christ. John 1 says that he tabernacled with us, left heaven to live in the dirt with us. No, no gain. All love. Pharaoh oppresses, God loves. Deuteronomy 10, explaining this passage, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, great God and mighty, awesome, and mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. 7, it says, For you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number, for you are the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which you swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out. The difference between the king we serve and the king of this world is that our king loves us. He's not just powerful. He's also loving. Loving in an absolute practical way. It's not an abstract concept. What does the love of God look like? Living with us. Suffering with us. You see, look back in chapter 1. Look what Pharaoh does. And there arose a new king 
And he said, come, let's deal shrewdly, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, they join our enemies. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. He afflicted them. He oppressed them. God comes down to live with us. Pharaoh oppresses. Pharaoh's not just some dead Egyptian king. Pharaoh is the world. Pharaoh is the other option for you. The king who oppresses. You see, the God of love is a God of justice. He loves the oppressed. He chose Israel because they were oppressed. He said, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number, for you are least of all people. He said, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He administers justice to the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. You see, God's love here produces justice. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself means pursuing justice. So Pharaoh oppresses. The king of this world oppresses. The king of heaven treasures. That's what Jesus said. That's what God said. He goes, I will make you a special treasure. You see the difference here between the God we worship and the God of the world? The God of the world dehumanizes. How were they able to throw all the babies into the river? Because they were no longer humans. Pharaoh had dehumanized them, and Egypt had gone along with it. God, on the other hand, comes down to live with them and says, you're my special treasure. I love the stranger. I love the oppressed. God, Pharaoh dehumanizes, God treasures, and he restores the image of God. You see, that's the point of this book of Exodus. He's taking people who are broken, dehumanized, oppressed, and transforming them into his image through his own presence. The presence of God changes people. It restores to them the image of God. Pharaoh dehumanizes. It strips down the image of God. It creates hate. It creates dehumanization. It creates separation. But the love of God raises people up. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for Chesapeake Baptist Church to follow this king? You see, you have a choice. The whole church has a choice. Which king will you follow? The king of oppression or the king of justice? The king of hate or the king of love? You see, when Pharaoh was operating here, he didn't come out straight away and said, let's murder people. He created something. And God had to uncreate it. The way you get from Israel as a valuable people in Egypt to throwing their babies into the river is a slow process. And it doesn't look like that's what's happening. You see, we in America are living in the middle of those two things. Between prized people and genocide. What is this world doing to us to lead us to that? 
And don't for a minute think that the God of this world is not trying to get us to murder. Don't think for a minute that Pharaoh is not getting this church trying to get us to oppression. The politics of this world are leading us to death, destruction, dehumanization. What's that look like for us? What's the source of all this? What was, what was Pharaoh's problem here? He wanted power. He wanted comfort. And so he had to step on other people to raise himself up. Do you live comfortably? You are in danger of becoming Pharaoh. The comfort that you enjoy by being middle class is the path to oppression. You see, no one's oppressed for no reason. They're oppressed so that somebody else can have more. Pharaoh didn't oppress the Israelites for no reason. He wanted to build himself up. He wanted to make life easier in Egypt. So the comfortable life we live is fine until it's threatened. When the comfortable life is threatened, then if we continue down that path, we'll resort to oppression to protect it. You see, no one was killing Israelites until they realized that they are more and mightier than we, and they're going to take what we have. Well, it was fine before when everyone was getting the same thing, but now you're going to take what's mine? That won't work, and we'll do anything to stop it. So the middle-class life is about wealth and comfort and upward mobility, and when that is threatened, the God of this world will give you options to stop it. Sometimes they're small options. Just keep your money to yourself. Sometimes they're big options. But they're always options to protect your stuff, your comfort. If you live in a majority culture, majority cultures, like every other person, wants what's best for themselves. The God of this world wants you to have what's best for you. And if you live in the majority, you become part of a culture that looks out for itself. And if the minority starts to infringe on what's normal, you'll do what you have to. Pharaoh will do what he has to do. If you live in America, white people are the dominant culture. That's just the way it is. That means that the path to oppression is when the majority is threatened. You see, the Israelites were minorities. And when it said they are, they are more and mightier than we, they were never more and mightier than the Egyptians. But Pharaoh said they were. Because he knew that they were threatening their way of life. And that can't happen. You see, the God that we serve, the king comes down to the people. But Pharaoh steps on the people. And if you live in a majority culture, you are in danger of using that power to protect it and to keep down other people who don't live like you do. What's so dangerous is because you're in the majority, you don't know it's happening all the time because so many people around you look and act just like you. You're not actively going out looking for problems. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to everybody in here, but it applies to the majority. The majority culture that we live in as white people deceives us. 
because it's all around us. It's in the TV shows. It's in the, it's in the pictures. It's in the dolls. It's in everything, so we don't see it. We're blind to our power. But blindness to power does not stop power from existing. Just because you don't know you have privilege doesn't mean you don't have it. Did anyone lock the front door? You're not afraid someone's going to come here and shoot us? Why not? Because we're a white church. Right? Black churches get shot up. Synagogues get shot up. We're not worried about it. The fact that it didn't cross your mind is a privilege. And sure, everyone should have that, but they don't. And so that privilege equals power. And when that privilege is threatened, we'll resort to what we have to do to protect it. This church has done that. This church has repressed voices that speak out against white-centered ministry. Some people have spoken out against it, and a lot more people haven't said anything. And so whiteness became centered, and those who would disagree had to go along or get out. And no one spoke up. None of the Egyptians said to Pharaoh, this is wrong. It just happened. What about gender? You see, the book of Exodus makes a very clear point that women are involved in the story. From the very first chapter, the midwives are the heroes. And then Moses' mother is the hero. And then his sister is the hero. What's the point here? That women are part of the kingdom. They're part of God's kingdom. They're not part of Pharaoh's kingdom. And yet this church has historically and systematically disregarded the discipleship of women. I know, I've been the pastor for three years. The discipleship of women in this church has been disregarded. Why? Because men are in power and we don't care about losing it. That's a hard saying, who can hear it? Power corrupts. Power is Pharaoh's way of getting you what you want. And when you've got it, he wants to pretend like you don't have it. He certainly doesn't want you to confront it. Money, comfort, control, prominence, those are ways to make you feel good. And Pharaoh will keep you from confronting and giving those up. But the king who we serve should come into our setting and upset that power balance. He is the king who protects and gives, administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the stranger. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You can't love God if you don't love the people God loves. You cannot worship the king if you disregard his citizens. So he says, protect the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, the marginalized, the oppressed, the ignored, the people you didn't think about before. You didn't mean to oppress them. You just never thought about them. Exactly. God thinks about them. And if this church does not think about them, we have chosen the politics of this world over the politics of Exodus, of God. 
But he's not just the God of love. He's the king of power, the king of love, but he's also the king of liberty. The whole book of Exodus is about freedom from bondage. He goes in there and he rescues them and he brings them out. You see, that's what the last verse is about. The very last verse of the book of Exodus. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God led them. Where was he leading them? Remember the cloud? The cloud was in Egypt and it led them out, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, leading them away from bondage to prosperity and freedom. And so it is here at the end. The cloud is back in the midst of the camp, guiding them towards freedom. Pharaoh created fear. He said, look at these Israelites. They're going to take what's ours. They're getting too strong. God says, I'm with you. Don't worry. There's nothing to be afraid of. I'm with you. You see, Pharaoh created an othering. He said, those people, God says, I'm with you. You see the contrast between one king and the other? The king that says other and the king that says, I'm with you. The king that says, be afraid of them. God says, I'm with you. You don't need to be afraid because I'm with you. Pharaoh creates fear. God gives comfort. You see, that's how Pharaoh was able to become so evil. Stewart says, if a regime wishes to be given freedom to oppress a given group within a nation, it defines that group as an undermining force, a real danger, and potentially an agent of overthrow of the established order. That's what Pharaoh said. He said, they're going to side with our enemies and overthrow us. Be afraid of them, so then destroy them. God takes his own people and says, you tried to overthrow me. Remember the golden calf? God says, that's okay, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm with you. When you start ter- phrasing people in ways that make them a threat to you, you've gone down the path of oppression. Because now it's about protecting yourself against other people. That's not how God works. So when you call people invaders, you're making people afraid of them, that they're going to come in and overthrow America. That is the very language of Pharaoh. They're going to come in and overthrow Egypt. What does God say? I love the stranger. I love the stranger. Pharaoh hates the stranger, but God loves him. What does this church do? Do we love the stranger or do we fear them? Do we step out and see people as people, as image of God, or do we see them as a threat? Pannenberg says, the root of all sin is the desire for identity, the instinctive will to be oneself, the tendency of the, of the self, in fact, to become the infinite basis and reference point for all object, thus usurping the place of God. We become the center, our identity. They're going to take over. We're going to lose our identity. We're going to lose our distinctiveness. That's the language of oppression. That's the language of sin. God says, I'll give you an identity. You already have the identity as being in the image of God. I'll give you a new identity. See, what God does in this last chapter is instead of saying to the people in heaven, those people are trying to overthrow my rule, which is exactly what they were trying to do. 
He says, I'll go down and live with them. I'm not afraid of them. I'll go down and live with them, and by living with them, I'll change them. You see what it takes to change somebody? God himself couldn't change his own people unless he came down to live with them. Jesus Christ had to come down to this earth and live with us to change us. And do we think for a minute that this church is going to change anybody out there unless we go out there? If God himself had to become incarnate and be as one of the people, how in the world are we going to reach people if we're not out there with them? By isolating ourselves, we're denying the kingship of God. God lives incarnate ministry in the flesh with the people. And this church must do it or we have chosen Pharaoh. Pharaoh uses, but God gives. Pharaoh creates slaves. God creates sons. How does he do it? How does God differ from Pharaoh on the ground? Because Pharaoh wasn't willing to give up anything. And God was willing to give up everything. Pharaoh wouldn't let slaves go despite his country being destroyed. It wasn't until Pharaoh's everything was taken that he let him go. And even then he followed him. The only way Pharaoh was stopped is when he was killed. He wouldn't give up anything. God says, I'll sacrifice everything. We want to help people. It cannot be done without sacrifice. We want to stop being a white-centered church. It cannot be done without giving up power. You want to include women? Men must give up some power. You want to include poor people? You must give up money. That's right. Take money out of your bank account and put it somewhere else. You cannot and we cannot follow the king who sacrificed everything and we don't do anything. Change happens through sacrifice. We must sacrifice. We must give up power. And by doing so, we reject the very core of sin. That's why it's so hard. Our sin nature says don't give up. And God says give up everything. We have to not just agree with oppression, but actually give up and act. He's fine. Whose kid is that? <laughs> You see, we can't just say, yeah, it's terrible what's happening to people. Are we going to act on it? Martin Luther King says, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. You see, when someone rejects you, you understand why they don't help you. When someone agrees with you and then doesn't help you, we agree that the poor are supposed to be ministered to, but we don't. We agree that pride creates racism, but we don't do anything about it. We have, we, uh, King says, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Not just the man who murders people because they're black or Jewish, but for the silence of Christians who know it's wrong and don't say anything because they don't want to be divisive. They don't want to be political. They want everybody to stop talking about it. They want everyone to stop talking about race and class and gender. 
and go back to the way it was. That's how Satan works. Hide the sin. Hide the problem. Until you name sin, it can't be fixed. Until you name the problem in Chesapeake Baptist Church, until we name the problems in this church, they cannot be fixed. And the way of the world is ignore them as long as we can. Let the past be the past. Then why are we studying the book of Exodus? We'll go 3,000 years into the past, but we won't go 50 years into the past. Why not? Because 50 years makes us look bad. See, we can look at Exodus and be like, man, Pharaoh, he's terrible. But we look at our fathers and grandfathers, and we don't want to talk about that. Because that makes us look bad. We want the past to be the past because we don't want to confront the sin in our community. And covering it up and ignoring it does not make it go away. God didn't cover anything up in the book of Exodus. He didn't cover up the sin of Pharaoh, and he certainly didn't cover up the sin of his own people. If God is going to name the sin of Moses, then we better name the sin of our church. And any sort of ignoring or covering up is the way of Pharaoh. And it's not just individuals. It's groups of people. King says, lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Niebuhr says, has reminded us, groups tend to be much more immoral than individuals. That's something that we don't want to hear, that the group we call this church may be worse than you yourself. We just want to make it all about individuals because we don't want to take responsibility for the group. But we are the group. You see, Satan is always offering you power. Did you grow up with oppression? He's offering you a way out. Were you Moses and born into privilege? He's offering to let you stay. You see, just because you've been oppressed and just because you've been marginalized doesn't mean you don't have a chance to become the oppressor. You see... What did Pharaoh do to the Israelites? He killed their babies. He murdered the babies. And Israel was grieved by the genocide by Pharaoh. But you know what happens to Israel? Read the rest of the Old Testament. They offered their own children up and killed them on the the altar of Molech. The oppressed who had their babies murdered became the oppressors. Why? Because Satan is always offering you a way out of suffering. Did you grow up poor? He'll bring you into the middle class and make you happy. Did you grow up marginalized? He'll offer you assimilation for power. Never think that you cannot become the powerful, the comfortable. Satan will figure out a way to make you the problem. So, God has said, I have built a kingdom that is built on one principle, God himself sacrifices everything for his people. The sacrifice of Christ is the opposite of Pharaoh. And so a church that follows Christ is willing to name sin, confront sin, and sacrifice to fix sin. Do we love Jesus? If you say you love God and don't love your brother, the love of God is not in you. If you don't even know the problems your brother has, you do not love them. There are people in this church who could tell you stories 
You've never heard them, though, because you never asked. Because it would make you uncomfortable, and you don't want to sacrifice anything. There are women who can tell you stories that you don't want to hear because it'll make you feel bad. What are we going to do now? Are we going to be a church that sacrifices to reach the marginalized, to see the oppressed, to lift them up? Or are we going to be a church that just speaks about the big ideas of God is love, Jesus died for us, and don't do anything? The way of Pharaoh or the way of Christ? Let's pray.